Uh, hello everyone, my name is Sam Foster. Uh, looking out, this is my regular service. So I recognise most of the faces here. I'm one of the youth pastors and the SRE coordinator here at Richmond Anglican Church. And if I don't know you, if this face is unrecognisable, I would love to remedy that after the service over a cup of coffee, because that's the kind of day I've had. Uh, today's chapter in Acts represents the better part of three years of ministry by the Apostle Paul to the city of Ephesus. Uh, and my hope this morning, this evening, sorry, I wrote this morning on my piece of paper. My hope this evening is that we won't take three years to get all the way through it. Uh, what we're going to do is we're going to focus on three scenes from today's chapter and specifically what's missing from those three scenes. Please pray with me. Dear Heavenly Father, as we approach your word this evening, please open our hearts and minds to receive it, that we might be open to what we need to change, what we need to address, and what we need to lay before you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you have a Bible with you, or even if you don't, it would be really helpful to have it open to Acts chapter 19. If you don't have a Bible, there are some available in the foyer. I won't judge you if you get up and go grab one. That is totally okay. In fact, I would encourage you to do so because it will be super helpful as we move through this passage together this evening. In our first scene, what we see recorded for us in verses 1 through 7 is Paul's arrival in this trade hub of Ephesus. And straight away, we read of his discovery of some disciples. And upon meeting these disciples, Paul is presumably excited, uh, and he asks them some questions to try and figure out who they are and who they believe that they're following. And what becomes clear right at the start of this interaction is that something is missing. These disciples don't know of Jesus. Paul, thankfully for our story uh, this evening, relieves them of their ignorance and shares with them that John's baptism that they've experienced was a baptism of repentance. He told the people to believe in the one coming after him, that is, in Jesus. Paul explains that John the Baptist who you can read about in John chapter 1, came before Jesus to prepare the way for him. John chapter 1 verse 8 says of John, He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. These disciples in Ephesus have heard the message of John the Baptist. But that's all they've heard. They heard the message in Matthew 3 verse 2 to repent for the kingdom of heaven has come near. But they didn't yet know that what they had been told was near was actually here in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And what a response we see from these disciples. We see them immediately desire to put their hope and trust in this Jesus. And the Holy Spirit comes on them with power, making itself known with signs and wonders in a delayed Pentecost. In this first scene that I want to focus on tonight, we see that without the knowledge of Jesus, the initial faith of these disciples, however admirable, was ultimately worthless. They were so close. They were doing disciply things calling themselves disciples, but ultimately they didn't yet have a saving relationship with Jesus because they didn't know him. 
We see their ignorance of Jesus, who he was, what he did, meant that their faith was shallow. And I think as we read of this, we should, and like hopefully in all three of our scenes we will do this evening, we should look inwards at ourselves and outwards at the world around us and ask the question, who is Jesus? Especially as we approach Christmas, the time where if you live in Australia, you can't avoid the Christian things that are going on around you. It's worth asking yourself, do I have a clear picture of what Jesus actually taught? Do I actually know what Jesus has done for me? For the disciples in our first scene here tonight, they responded with eagerness, immediate acceptance of the free gift of grace. And as we see in verse 9, after Paul meets some opposition, the disciples continue to follow Paul around. They pursue a deeper knowledge of Jesus. This is not just a one-time decision for them. They don't just hear of Jesus once and go, okay, tick that box, that is done. For them, it is a continual pursuit of the knowledge of who Jesus is and what that means for their lives. And we see God continue to affirm Paul's ministry here in Ephesus. For two years, Paul proclaims Jesus to the people and he does miraculous things. We're told in verse 12 that even bits of fabric he'd touched were brought to the sick and they were cured. Now, if you're a good little Anglican like me, that there's a tension in that. But it's what we're told happened. Such power on display to affirm the truth of the gospel. To affirm the truth of the good news that Paul was sharing with the people of Ephesus. That the kingdom of God was here in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. In our second scene, we read of some who saw this power on display, who saw the way that God was working through Paul, and they wanted that for themselves. In verses 13 through 20, we read of some industrious guys who try to call on the name of Jesus uh, and even Paul for their own ends. We see these Jewish men who appear to have some sort of exorcism hobby going on, uh, going around and trying to drive out evil spirits. They turn up to one house, presumably after hearing of how God is moving powerfully through Paul's ministry in Ephesus, and they try to say to this one demon-possessed person, in the name of Jesus, whom Paul preaches, I command you to come out. But it doesn't work. It fails, actually, quite spectacularly. The evil spirit answers them, Jesus, I know. Paul, even, I know about. But who are you? And the evil spirit-possessed person promptly proceeds to beat them up uh, so severely that they have to run out of the building naked. Uh, I don't really know what happens in someone getting beaten up for that to happen, uh, but news of this almost comic relief story in the middle of our chapter spreads throughout the whole city of Ephesus. And in much the same way as with the other miraculous things that are happening, it confirms and affirms the good news that Paul is sharing, that the kingdom of God has arrived in the person 
of Jesus. These men tried to use the power of Jesus, but just like in our first scene, something was missing. They were missing a relationship with Jesus. Much like the disciples in our first scene, they're missing knowledge of who Jesus truly is. Sure, they think he's powerful, but they don't truly know him. And the great irony here is that the evil spirit itself knows what these men do not. That Jesus is the Son of God who has defeated sin's hold on humanity, defeated death, and won the ultimate victory over the forces of darkness and evil. It knows of Jesus and it knows of Paul, but it doesn't know of these men because these men do not know Jesus. These men have a desire for spirituality. They want the benefits of that, but they don't want a relationship with Jesus. And like in our first scene from Acts 19 tonight, I wonder if we see this today in the world around us, perhaps even in Richmond and certainly in ourselves. For some, the message of Jesus and the benefits he brings are appealing. Having a joy not tied to our circumstances, a hope of something greater, perhaps even just the community, having people around you who love you and care for you and want to seek your good. That's something that we can all long for and all want. But these things that might appeal to some people, only come through a relationship with Jesus. People like the idea of loving one another. They want to be spiritual. So they just pick and choose what works for them. But they don't want to have Jesus as Lord and King. And what does it actually mean for Jesus to be King? What does it mean for Jesus to be Lord? Well, when your king asks you to do something, you do it. Your king has your unreserved yes. And it's worth noting that this isn't just some abstract thing that we should look at others and say, oh, wow, they need Jesus as their king. They, they need to repent for, because they have such a shallow, pointless spirituality I think this is something that we all need to hear. That part of yourself that you try and keep from God, that recurrent sin that you struggle with but you don't want to address because it makes you feel nice. As Lord and King, Jesus gets to tell us to let those things go. Or in the very words of Paul, to these Christians in Ephesus in a letter he would later write called Ephesians, he tells them to put to death their old lives. That their old life they lived before they knew Jesus should be so far removed from who they are in him that it is like it is dead to them. As we read on, we read of some people who are so afraid of this possibility so concerned by the possibility of a loss of some way of life that they riot in the streets. In verses 23 to 41, the end of our chapter, we read of some silversmiths 
and tradespeople, silversmiths is a hard word, these people make a living by making and selling shrines to Artemis, the god from the Roman set of gods that was most revered in this city, Ephesus. And these men are concerned by the message of this Paul guy who's been hanging around in their city for the last couple of years. They see him as a threat to their profit margins and to their god. They don't want to see their goddess robbed of her divine majesty as if if she could have her divine majesty taken away, she would actually be worth worshipping at all. And they also don't want to have to stop being able to sell the shrines that make them a lot of money so that people can have their own little gods in their houses. These tradespeople work themselves, and we're told in verse 29, the entire city into an uproar. And they actually grab some of Paul's companions. It's chaos and confusion. People are shouting. Most most of them don't even really know what's going on. They just join in because something's happening. And it all just kind of builds and builds and builds. Some people try to defend Paul and his friends, but they just get shouted down until eventually everyone is just screaming, great is Artemis of the Ephesians for two hours nonstop. Until eventually a third party has to come in, a city official, and just tells them all to chill before they get charged for rioting. Paul and his friends have clearly done nothing wrong. Go home. And if you have any actual legal problems, uh, we're open in business hours, 9 to 5 on Monday. Come and see us then. In this scene, the tradespeople don't want to know Jesus. Not only do they not know who Jesus is, do they not have a relationship with him, but they actually don't want either of those things. For them, their shrines, their idols are enough for them. They don't want to even interact with Paul, so they just shout louder and louder about how great what they already have is. But just like with the other two scenes, these people don't know Jesus. Ultimately, without Jesus, they are in the dark. And so they just cling to what they have, to their money, to their idols, because they don't want to risk their financial well-being, so they they justify themselves by claiming it's religious devotion to their God. They're just content in their darkness, not knowing of the light and not wanting to know of the light, lest it take from them the parts of the darkness that they actually like. And to me, this scene is the saddest of the three we've looked at. In our first scene, the disciples didn't know Jesus, but they eagerly heard the good news and they accepted it. They wanted to know more. And their lives changed from that point onwards. In the second scene, the wannabe exorcists could see there is power in the name of Jesus. And even though they got beaten up, through their actions, Paul's ministry was affirmed. There was some good that came out of it. But in this scene, the stubborn, closed-off hearts of the people are just not open to the message of Jesus. And so they don't get to experience the love and certainty that comes with a relationship with him. 
because instead they cling to their jobs, their money, their status, their own created gods. Now, as I start to list these things off, uh, if you're anything like me, you immediately start to do what I said we should do, which is look inwards. And my hope in looking at these three scenes is that they can be like a mirror for us as we approach Christmas. A mirror that can help us to better examine the areas of our lives where we are missing something. Whether it's knowledge of Jesus or a relationship with him. The disciples at the start lacked knowledge, but once they gained it, they pursued a relationship with Jesus. The very first thing we should examine in ourselves from Acts 19 is to ask the question, do I know Jesus? Perhaps you're sitting there today and you're just exploring who Jesus is. You're still searching for answers. You don't really know what's going on with this whole church thing. And if that's you, if you're still searching, I'm so happy you're here. I'm so glad that you're here to learn, that your eyes are open, that you want to know more. I hope and pray that you will continue to ask questions, that you will continue to seek the truth. And I pray that one day you will reach the point where you can accept Jesus as the Lord of your life. Perhaps for some of you, you already know Jesus. And if that's the case, and I assume it's the case for most of the people in this room, I would like to invite you to not rest in that state, but rather to continue deepening your relationship with him. You can always learn more. And it's never too late to open that Bible that's been sitting unread on your nightstand for the past six months. It's never too late to start again. It's never too late to work on your relationship with God. Perhaps tonight you need to be warned by the second scene of the wannabe exorcists who were seeking some personal gain from Jesus without having a relationship with him. These people wanted what Jesus had to offer but didn't want him as king. Perhaps you're seeking for community, morals, teaching, maybe even power, but you don't want Jesus as king of your life. You're not giving Jesus your unreserved yes. If that's the case, I think you can learn from the silversmiths. They were so concerned with maintaining their life that they wouldn't stop to actually listen to the message of who Jesus is and what he's done. They were so blinded by their worldly possessions that they just don't want to hear it. And so it begs the question, what parts of your life are so important to you that you switch off the moment Jesus would call them into question? Or what parts of your life are you squashing your conscience in by finding articles online or echo chambers on social media that tell you that that thing, that sin, that worldly desire, that gospel-opposed priority isn't all that bad. Brothers and sisters, I'd like to invite you to know and have a relationship with Jesus. Especially as we draw closer to Christmas, the time of year 
where most of the world celebrates the birth of Jesus, the entrance of the kingdom of God into our world. Don't be like the silversmiths or the sons of Sceva, the wannabe exorcists. Rather, seek to build your knowledge of Jesus so that you can have a relationship with him. Let's let Jesus be the Lord of our lives. Please pray with me. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for Jesus. Thank you for his life, his teaching, and ultimately his death and resurrection for us. Thank you that he's defeated sin and we can come to him with repentance and we know that we can be saved. Please help us to live our lives with Jesus as our Lord and King, giving him our unreserved yes. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.